1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read and then we'll pray before Neil comes to speak to us. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new leavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Let's pray together before we come to look at that passage. Father in heaven, as we've just read those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we are reminded of just how broken this world is, and indeed just how broken the church can be. Father, we're sorry for our sin. We're sorry for the damage that it does to others, to your church and to the honour of your name. And so, Father, we take a moment now to acknowledge our own need for forgiveness, as well as our need for ongoing change and our need for other people in our lives who love us enough to speak into our lives for our own transformation and change as we seek to walk faithfully with you day by day. Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh, Father, how we long to be those people, trained in righteousness, thoroughly equipped for every good work, willing to receive your correction and your rebuke and your training through your word 
but also through your people who bring that word to bear upon our own lives. Father, we're sorry for the times when we should have said something to somebody, but we didn't. We're sorry for the times when we have said something to people, but our words or our motives have lacked love and have lacked grace. And Father, we're sorry for those times when we fail to accept the loving challenge of others because of the pride and the stubbornness that remains in our own hearts. Oh, Father, break down that pride that we might be willing to listen to what you have to say through your word and through your people. And Father, in light of our of our failings in this area, we thank you once again for your incredible love to us that covers all our sin. We praise you for the death of your son, Jesus Christ, his death in our place on the cross. And Father, we thank you that you remain committed to us, not just in that one-off glorious act, but in an ongoing way as you live within us by your Spirit, as you transform us daily evermore into your likeness for your glory. Father, please help us to be those people who are receptive to change, who have enough humility to look at their own hearts and lives and to listen to others, that we might see those areas in our own life where we continue to fall short and by the grace of God, And through the prayers and support of your people, we might be changed evermore into your likeness. As iron sharpens iron, help us to be a people who sharpen each other, that we might walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And we pray now as Neil comes to open up that particular portion of scripture to us. Father, would you be at work through your word, by your spirit, in our hearts, identifying areas in our life which can be changed by you. For your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. Thanks, Wazi, for those prayers. Um, we have prayed, so let's uh, go straight into uh, this passage. Uh, and let's start by thinking um, about this word discipline. I wonder what you think of when I mention that word. Maybe if you're a parent or have been a parent, maybe the, the children have grown up, and maybe you can think of those challenges of um, disciplining a disobedient child. And maybe you can remember your own school days and being disciplined for your own misbehavior. If you're old enough, you might even have experienced a caning by the, the head teacher. Very painful experience, so they say. Um, it's not just um, physical punishment, though, is it? We can be disciplined in a number of different ways. I remember when I was, I was at school, we had a, an outdoor swimming pool with cubicles all the way around. Uh, and there was one lesson, and I think we were about probably 13 or so. Uh, the PE teacher left us to get changed. Uh, big mistake, um, boys of that age. So we um, obviously, I don't know how it started, got in a bit of a dare. And before you know it, there's a few of us in the pool. Teacher comes back and um, catches us in the act and disciplines us. So we were banned from swimming 
Uh, now you might say that's not a bad thing, depending how much you enjoy swimming. But of course, this was the summer of uh, 76, um, lots of sunshine. Following week, we had double geography cancelled because our uh, teacher was away. He was sick. So instead of sitting in a stuffy classroom, there was the option of going swimming for the afternoon if you hadn't been banned. The pain of punishment. But if you look at the dictionary definition of discipline, the first thing it says is this, the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior. Now the problem is part of our fallen human nature doesn't like obeying rules. Um, doesn't like being told how to behave. And increasingly our society doesn't like authority. We know we need rules and authority, um, but we don't like anyone to tell us what we should do. We live in a permissive society, a society that's very different today from a society of, of 50 years ago, as I'm sure many of you will have noticed. And the, the society of Corinth, the culture then, was very similar in many ways to that of our society today. There was sexual permissiveness, uh, there was individual freedom. And the trouble was that the, the newly established church had not made a break from the society around it and had allowed these attitudes to permeate the church. Paul writes in the following chapter, in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. It's all about freedom and rights, but true freedom in Christ is different. That's about following the God-given instructions that are for our benefit and becoming the people that we were designed to be. Right at the beginning of uh, this letter, Paul writes in, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, writes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. What he was making clear was, you have been made holy by Jesus. You are acceptable in God's sight. That is an amazing privilege. Now you are called to live a life that is holy, that is distinct from the society around you. And Paul has already warned them in the first four chapters of this letter that we've been looking at in the last few weeks. So their ideas of knowledge and wisdom and power have been influenced by the society in which they live. Whereas God's wisdom is found in the foolishness of the cross. And as we go now into this, this next section, running from chapter 5 through to chapter 7, Paul focuses on some specific examples to help them understand the nature of true Christian freedom and what that should look like. And the first one we're looking at in our passage this evening is to do with sexual immorality. Paul writes in verse 1, is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Remember, Corinth had quite a reputation for, for sexual immorality. So this must be pretty bad. And he goes on to, to explain what it is. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, presumably with his stepmother, otherwise he probably would have said with his mother, 
Um, and the situation is ongoing. A man is sleeping. It wasn't just a one-off mistake. He is carrying on. And Paul is shocked that they could accept such behavior. And so he says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? For some reason, the church has allowed it. It's turned a blind eye. It's failed to exercise discipline. So as we, we go into this passage, the questions we're asking ourselves is, why is church discipline so important? Why is it important then? Why is it important now? And the first uh, thing I want to mention is that uh, church discipline demonstrates a love for those who stray. Before we come on to the advice in this chapter, let's go turn back a few um, books in the Bible to Matthew chapter 18. You can find that um, on page 985. And here we have Jesus giving some teaching himself on church discipline. And it's verses uh, 15 onwards, dealing with sin in the church. But before... He comes on to that passage. Interestingly enough, there's a parable about the parable, there's a passage about the parable of the wandering sheep. Where, do you remember that passage where the, the, the shepherd is willing to leave the 99 sheep on the hills and go in search of the one who's wandered off, who's strayed? And it finishes in verse um, 14, saying, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Basically because he loves them so much. Uh, And it's in that context of the Father's love for those who stray that we have this passage about a Christian sinning. So let's have a look at verse 15 onwards. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So there's a clear process here that should be followed. And in each case, the sinner is confronted with his or her sin. They are given an opportunity to repent. And it's in that last situation where they refuse to listen even to the church that as a final action, they should be treated as someone who's not a believer and cast out of the church. So coming back to 1 Corinthians 5 then, the assumption here is that this person that Paul mentions has been confronted and he's refused to repent. And so the criticism Paul is leveling is, is at the individual, but also at the church who failed to do anything about it. And Paul's quite clear what they should have done. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? And before he goes on, he first of all reassures them that although he's not physically present with them, he's still very much with them in spirit. He's a real concern for all of the church in Corinth. But then what is his advice? Have a look at this, this five. He says, quite directly, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, that doesn't seem particularly loving towards the sinner on the first reading, does it? 
But what does it mean? What is he getting at to hand him over to Satan? Well, Satan is the God of this world. And so he's saying, exclude him from the church, the loving fellowship of a community of, uh, of believers, and let him live among those who are not believers. As we saw in the recent series on a devoted church, fellowship is about what we have in common. Um, it's a love for, for Jesus our Savior, a desire to follow him as our Lord. And by his behavior, this man is showing that he doesn't follow Jesus as Lord. And so Paul is saying, don't give him the impression that all is fine and that that is how a Christian is able to behave. Now you might think, well, how is that actually going to help him by excluding him? Surely that's going to make things worse. Well, the word translated flesh here refers to the fallen part of, of man's nature. So what Paul appears to be saying is, by casting him out, hopefully that will help him see what he's doing wrong. Just the fact that he's no longer among his fellow Christians, he's no longer under the influence of the Spirit, may shock him into realizing that this is not where he wants to stay, and particularly not on the Day of Judgment. And that is Paul's ultimate reason for casting him out. He says at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul is advocating an action that may appear harsh, but is actually the most loving thing that can be done. Because it has the eternal future of this person at heart. It's about restoring and healing. It's not just about punishing for the sake of it. The unloving thing will be to tolerate his sin and cause his eternal loss. So church discipline demonstrates a love for those who stray. Secondly, church discipline is important for the health of the church. One of the problems of this uh, young church was the Corinthians still had a very individualistic approach to church. It was all about their, their rights. Later on in chapter 9, Paul asks, he says, don't we have certain rights as missionaries, as servants of the Lord, those who are ministering to you? And yet, he says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He also says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Yes, I have rights. Yes, I have freedom. But I choose not to take advantage of those rights. I give up my freedom for the sake of the gospel. In contrast, the Corinthian Christians here, as we'll read later on in the letter, stuff their faces at the Lord's Supper without thinking of the poor members of the church. Those who had to make do with the scraps. Um, they exercise spiritual gifts to show off rather than to serve others and build others up. And as Vaughan Roberts um, summarizes, he says, As far as they were concerned, life in the Spirit was all about me, my freedom, my rights, my gifts. And so Paul was trying to explain to them, when you become a believer, you become a part of Christ's church. And you give up your rights for the sake of others. You want what's best for them. You want what's best for the church. Because the church is the bride of Christ. 
And what that means is that your behavior has an impact. You can't just say, well, that's my affair. That's just between me and God. It's not. It affects the church. Going back to to chapter 5, Paul asks in verse 6, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Apparently, Cadbury's uh, found that out to their cost, um, and a very expensive cost it was too, back in 1972 when they were forced to destroy 25 million chocolate Easter eggs um, because the yeast in the cream filling had apparently expanded after the eggs left the factory and caused cracks in the shells. Um, didn't just affect one egg, it affected the whole, whole batch. Our unconfessed sin doesn't just affect our relationship with God. It affects the whole church. You may remember the story of Achan um, in the book of Joshua. Israel uh, had entered the promised land. They just defeated Jericho. Remember all the walls coming down? Um, and they're off onto the next city, the city of Ai. And there they were heavily defeated. And Joshua comes to God in despair and says, what, what is going on here, Lord? And God says to him this. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They've put them with their own possessions. It was actually one person. It was Achan. Um, But it had an effect on the whole nation. I remember doing a a mission week with um, with Rico Tice when I was at uh, Bible college. And before we started the week, he, he got the team together and he read the story of, of Achan. Uh, and he challenged us all, saying, you know, if anybody here has got unconfessed sin that they're not dealing with, um, they need to confess it now because it will affect the success of the whole mission. The sin of one member of the church can affect God's blessing on us all. And so Paul writes, get rid, verse 7, of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If there is a risk of sin permeating the whole church, the only solution is to clean it out. Discipline is important, not just for the good of the individual, but for the good of the whole church to prevent the spread of sin. As Paul speaks of a, a new batch without yeast. In other words, the church is not just the old one patched up a little bit. It's actually radically new. And what makes it new is that Christ has been sacrificed. His death has delivered them from evil. It's made them the people of God. The church is the body of Christ. And so ultimately, it's not just for the good of the church. It's actually to protect the reputation of Jesus Christ himself. Because that's what we're here for at the end of the day, isn't it? We're here as a body of believers to glorify Christ in everything we do. And so when the reputation of the church is damaged, the reputation of Jesus Christ is damaged. And that can happen by the sin of one person. And that's why we need to pray for one another. That's why pastors and elders um, need your constant prayers because we will be ones who um, will be under probably the most attack because as the devil gets at us, he can bring down the reputation of the church. 
Well, before we come on to the application of this for us today, um, let me just say something about the last section, verse 9 to 13, because here there's obviously been some misunderstanding in a previous letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he's now trying to clear that up. And it's to do with the attitude of Christians to those outside the church. And Paul makes um, very clear here that Christians are not to judge those outside the church. Have a look at verse 9. Let me read from verse 9 to the end there. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. The two um, two extremes when it comes to the relationship of Christians uh, with the world are, on the one hand, to withdraw from it and to form some sort of Christian ghetto. Um, at the other end, to be so involved um, that the Christian becomes almost indistinguishable from those in the world. Jesus tells us to be in the world, but not of it. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. Of course, there'll be sexually immoral people all around you. Uh, of course, there'll be people who love money, who are dishonest, who live for the pleasures of the world and, and don't acknowledge God. And that is painful to see because we know how um, hurtful it is to God, how much it offends him. But Paul is saying it's not our job to judge them. That is God's job. It is our job to show them grace, to point them to Christ. And Christians down the ages have caused much damage to the, the gospel the gospel of grace through a self-righteous or a judgmental attitude. And the result is if you ask a lot of people in the street, what do they think is it means to be a Christian? Um, They'll often ask you, we'll just say, well, it's all about keeping a set of rules, isn't it? And they'll probably know Christians who are not particularly uh, um, good in that area and they're just hypocrites. And they think, what's the point of that? We need to be honest about our weaknesses, about our failings. Um, We need to be honest about our need for a saviour and point people to Jesus as the one who saved us. I think it was in the conference um, this week that it was pointed out, we are quick to say that Jesus loves us as we are. But actually that's not strictly true. He loves us despite how we are. Now we could say a lot about this, but I think the main point of the passage is dealing with sin in the church. So let's finish with some applications. If church discipline shows love to the one who strays and is important for the health of the church, then I guess that raises the question, why is it that church discipline isn't exercised much today? Um, And it's not just uh, in the formal sense of the word. Why uh, is the church unwilling to challenge the sinful behavior of fellow Christians? Uh, Not just in this church, but in general. Let me just uh, suggest uh, a few reasons. I think the first of those is that churches are not using the Bible as their final authority. Um, So they're unsure of actually what is right and wrong behavior. 
And if Christians aren't going to the Bible, then they will do one of two things. They'll either go for a gut instinct, um, but because we're fallen, our, our gut instinct is often wrong. Or they'll, they'll follow, well, what is culture doing around us? What seems to be right? What is the wisdom of the world? Which is even worse because it's far from, from God. And sadly, churches will often deliberately choose to follow society standards in order to, to somehow not appear out of touch, uh, to be relevant. Ignoring the fact that the Bible is the word of an eternal God, the one who made us, who knows what is best for us. And the ironic thing is that when churches do that, they become even more irrelevant um, because they've nothing different, distinctive to offer. Secondly, we, we're aware that we ourselves are not perfect. We all know that. Um, and therefore, we don't like to judge others. And, you know, Jesus says himself, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank of your, out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we probably know that passage, and we're all aware we're not perfect. So who are we to criticize others? But what Jesus was condemning there was not any kind of judging but the attitude of judgmentalism, uh, the sort of arrogant, the sort of self-righteous person who's constantly seeing faults in others, but blind to the faults in themselves. The sort of the Pharisee who Jesus criticizes a lot of the time. Jesus didn't criticize the, the tax collectors or sinners um, because they didn't claim to be righteous. They needed saving. Um, but he criticized those who are proud and look down on others in a superior way. So there is a place for judging. A few verses later, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you would recognize them. So there is a place for condemning the sinful behavior of fellow Christians. But I think the main reason we probably don't challenge one another is that we are afraid of causing offense. Um, we don't want to cause hurt. Uh, we don't want anybody to take offense. And so quite often we'll take the easy way out, um, convincing ourselves that it's probably the most loving option. But as we've seen in this passage, um, it's not the most loving way. And the thing is, when someone is hurt or offended, that doesn't automatically mean that they have been wronged. Because we can all choose how to respond to a rebuke. And the truth of the challenge is no one likes to be challenged, do we? None of us likes to be, to be challenged. Um, yes, we may be Christians, we're saved, but pride is still in us. Um, and so the immediate reaction for, for most of us when we're challenged is we're a bit defensive. We don't like what this person said to us. Whereas the humble person says, well, even if 95% of what that person said to me is, is unfair or unjust or wrong. Maybe there's just a, an element of truth in what that person said, which I need to take a note of. 
So if those are reasons why we don't exercise church discipline, what do we do about it to finish? Well, I think, first of all, we need to repent of putting that fear of causing offence above a concern for the spiritual um, health of our Christian brother or sister. Secondly, we need to make Christ-likeness the priority for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we should be praying for one another, that we would all be becoming more like Jesus Christ. Thirdly, that when we receive a rebuke, when somebody challenges us, we need to pray that we would receive it with great humility, as if that rebuke were from the Lord himself. And finally, when we feel that we ought to give a a rebuke or challenge somebody, that we do it with love, we do it with grace, and we do it with great sensitivity. And if somebody does give you a rebuke without grace, um, I think it's right to point out to them, look, I hear what you're saying, um, you may well be right, but you might just like to phrase that a little bit more graciously. Well, as we finish, let me quote from Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is what he writes, this is what he was so concerned about, above all in his ministry, not just for the church in Colossae, but for all the churches that he planted and, and discipled. Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Well, may that be our goal as well, as we seek with all the love and energy that Christ works in us to help one another become more like Jesus Christ. Let's have a moment of quiet, just reflect on that, some of those things which God may be um, pointing out to you. A moment of quiet to, to, to pray to God, to listen to him, and then the band will lead us in a couple of songs to, to finish. Let's close some quiet.